0: Hello, my name is Regis Bertolin. I'm a Professor of Classics at the University of Calgary. I'm your host today for the New Books Network. And with me today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter Tui. He's as well a Professor of Classics. He has many varied interests, research interests, and among them Greek and Roman epic poetry, history of emotions, Cultural History of Medicine, and the History of Madness. He has authored six books, and most recently, he has published a book called Boredom, A Lively History, which appeared in 2011, a book called Jealousy in 2014, and the book that has brought us together today is his latest one, Hold On, The Life, Science, and Art of Waiting, Published by Oxford University Press in two thousand and twenty. Well, Peter, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview.
1: It's a pleasure, Reyes.
0: <laughs> Good, and I just have a series of questions, so um, let's get started. I mean, um, you are a classical scholar, and your latest work has been on. Modern and contemporary, um, oh, what do I say now? Sorry, they will edit this, so that's good. Um, yeah, on on the modern and contemporary aspects um, of emotions, um, was it easy to transition from the classical world to the modern world?
1: It goes back in time that I guess I the, the transition was so early in my career that, uh, I didn't notice it. what it what started uh, my interest in the modern things was working on ancient notions of boredom. That goes right back to the to the nineteen eighty so it goes back a long way. when i when I wrote that, no great article now looking back makes me makes me shudder a little bit, but at any rate, you know that's that's what I wrote then and and you live with what you've written. but looking at looking at boredom then, it struck me, or at least the conclusions I reached, um, led me to an interest in the the modern condition of boredom, and if you wanted to explain that, it's, it's pretty easy to say that there's not much written about boredom in the ancient world, very little, and what you get is quite late. Um, Particularly, late, say, with your interests, you don't see boredom easily identified in in authors like Homer or Hesiod and so on. So you tend to see it much later. You can get it in Plutarch or uh, authors like that. So it led me to think, writing about the small amount of sources, is why is there so little depiction of boredom in the ancient world and so much in the modern world? So you can see there, there's the... If you like, uh, the tra- transitions are built in. As soon as you start to think about the ancient world, you start to think about the modern world, and you could say, "Well, the ancients must have been bored." Well, sure, but they don't talk about it. That's the that's the difficult thing for us, whereas we never shut up about it. I mean, uh, you know, a so book comes out about it about every every six months, and uh, um, there's options. A- Lot of hullabaloo about it, you know, the latest book on boredom. You think, boy, you know, I mean, how many more do we need? I don't know, lots, but anyhow, that gives you a sense of the transition that was never really a transition, just a, a gradual easing in.
0: Okay. So, and um, so you have written about emotions previously, you know, like we were just talking about boredom and jealousy. Um, how did you move from that to? the study of waiting is is waiting an emotion can it be considered an emotion
1: but you could you could look at the first part of it first how do you move from waiting to uh, sorry from boredom to waiting and it's you know people with small children in their houses say grandchildren know all about Peppa Pig, and Peppa Pig goes to the dentist. You know, she's a little cartoon character for kids about four years and three years old. They stop looking at it aged about five Pepper, uh, Pepper's waiting at the dentist and she lets forth a howl. It's waiting is boring, she says. So in a sense, there's the, the link, if you like. Well, it's not at all. You know, they're completely different situations, but it feels often like waiting is immensely boring. You're parked in a traffic jam and you let out a curse this is boring. Uh, you're waiting in the checkout in the supermarket and you're waiting too long and you say this is boring at the beginning of the pandemic, the first lockdowns, you're waiting outside the uh, um, the Sunnyside health food store as I did on many occasions and you're thinking this queue is boring and so on. So there you can see there's a, a natural affinity, it's probably not a fair affinity I, I believe, between, uh, between um, boredom and waiting. So, in a sense, that's how it leads to us. The link to, to jealousy is there, but that's a, a little more complicated and tedious. But we may we may get back to that. Um, th- that answers your, um, um, your, your first question. But you also asked me: Can boredom be considered an emotion? And Maybe it's uh, maybe it's jumping too quickly to say it, but here's the sort of the story you'd, you'd make with it that most situations involving waiting seem to have a fairly standard brain chemistry and they seem to exploit either either dopamine which which has its own excitements or serotonin which doesn't seem to produce pleasure in uh, in creatures but it seems to be uh, it seems to emerge within the brain in these situations where pairing is involved not necessarily you know the the full throes of uh, erotic and emotional love at the beginning of a, a relationship but say between parents and children uh probably between brothers and sisters between couples that have been uh linked up for a fair amount of time that's the serotonin one a little harder but waiting can be exciting too if you're waiting for something good to happen um dopamine is going to flow. And you might say you're stuck in the traffic and it should be boring, but you might be going to do something really interesting. See somebody you really like or who knows what. But then it's exciting, isn't it? And roiling in the brain is this uh, uh, pleasure neurotransmitter or neurochemical uh, dopamine. So what I'm getting at there is is that there's a limited amount of uh, brain chemistry, it appears, that's linked with the uh, linked with boredom, and uh, to have an emotion work in the brain, there's always got to be brain chemistry. So we, you seem to have that, and it's of, of a limited sort. Then uh, there is what you could call a phenotype, that is to say, a, uh, um, a series of gestures or situations people find themselves in that can evoke this sort of emotion, and there's certainly phenotypes linked with boredom let's say and there is with anger isn't it you know if i were angry now you could tell from looking at me um if you are bored with what i'm saying now i could tell from looking at you you're looking bored anyhow um <clears throat> there you have the phenotype plus the uh what the um the brain chemistry and what's the phenotype for waiting it's uh, a person is stuck they're paused and so on um, or they may even, like these little vervet monkeys, be indulging in this uh, um, sort of lengthy, several hours a day, mutual grooming, plucking, stroking, and so on. So that's a, a long story, but then it's, it's a long sort of question to answer. If waiting's to have status as an emotion rather than simply a situation, which is what Peppa Pig's grumbling about, then what leads you to think maybe it could be one of these new sorts of emotions, emotions we haven't recognised before, is the brain chemistry and the uh, and the phenotype? That's what I believe. But, you know, it's not something you'd want to stake your life on. It's, it's something to put out there and say, maybe we've been thinking about waiting wrongly. It has the emotional independence of something like empathy, for example, or uh, uh, even excitement.
0: So... In- I was just thinking while you were talking. So is then are are new emotions being created or being defined? Is is there not a set of emotions? How does it work?
1: They're always there. I don't think emotions are ever invented. Emotions have a, a sort of what's the word? They have a uh, almost Darwinian function. Uh, within uh, within human beings, emotions are there to to benefit us. Um, the simplest one to always to illustrate is anger. That that of course anger is a bad thing, but in many instances, anger is a very good thing, isn't it? You know, someone tries to attack your uh, your husband or your mother um, or your brother. is liable to boil inside you, and you and you're liable to step in. So. In that sense, anger's beneficial, um, and you know, as you know, the Greeks, the Greeks felt this all the time. It's when these emotions get out of hand that it's it's a problem. What am I getting at? That emotions of the sorts that I've been writing about have always been with us. It's just we don't always identify them, and perhaps, and this may sound a little more trickier, we don't always need them. That. The, An emotion such as uh, boredom, for example, is less common in the ancient world, probably not because it doesn't exist, but because um, it's such a public world they live in. It's uh, a household where you're never alone. If it's in Rome, the slaves are sleeping on the floor. There's no slave quarters. You're never alone. So your your chances or your options for... uh, if you like, for experiencing boredom are not quite as as manifest as they are in a world where we spend huge amounts of time well maybe we don't, but we think we spend a lot of time alone. Now anger's an easy one. Boredom's a little more complicated because it seems to shift in its frequency seems to, rather than necessarily does. And I think you'd say the same in a way with with waiting that imagine you are a um almost any culture until recently why would you talk about um waiting it seems so obvious and so common a thing that um you don't need to you don't need to discuss it so in a sense that's what a new emotion is it's it, it's an emotion that you become a little more conscious of its role within the uh, um the human psychology so it's always been there but it's something that we perhaps didn't pay the sort of heed to it that we ought to have. That's that's my position. Part of it. Part of it.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so, it, are waiting and boredom in opposite or the same? At the end of your book, you mentioned something like boredom is the enemy of waiting. Like I, I'm i more like a Peppa Pig. I would associate boredom with waiting or waiting with boredom but you seem to to argue well i think differently
1: yes i think you i think there you focus on just one aspect of boredom and for example you know you, you wonder why i mention things from my life frequently but it's what one does but my father was a most unbored man um he um, he was pretty good at waiting too, and uh, it wasn't so much that he was patient, it's just that they're the waiting, uh, is unrelated to boredom, and it's often to something good that's coming up. Now, I think that you neglect in your waiting experience, the great book of waiting in your life, if you like, all the times when waiting is in fact a very pleasant thing. Um, it's very exciting, the dopamine's there that you neglect the sort of waiting, hanging around, if you like. You could use it that way, the holding on that you do with your family, um, with small children. It's often excruciatingly boredom, but you know it, you're going to do it, and you know there's going to be a payoff at the end of it. And the payoff with the children is affiliation. And there's my little tag, if you can't wait, you can't affiliate. And it really seems to be true. The the strength of a bond between an adult and a child is linked with the amount of, of time, particularly the adult is willing to wait with the child, watch them play, intervene occasionally. I mean, you spend hours sitting on a couch or a chair with children while they play, while they periodically talk to you or ask you to interact. Now, it can be boring, but it's not really. It's sort of waiting, and you know what comes at the end of it instinctively. The bond grows with the child, and you're able to uh, play a role, often a beneficial role. You hope, because of this waiting. So, the um, it's not it's not as simple as as the patience, which I should have emphasised that my father displayed. Um, patience is a small subset of waiting, and. Nor is it the same as boredom, which is just a a small subset and can be of that experience. We can say more about boredom in its definition to explain it. That, I think, I'd say is what you're underestimating, just how often enjoyable boredom is, how, sorry, waiting is, how scary it can be sometimes, Um, and, uh, and how often exciting it is. Does that make sense.
0: Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So, so I guess there are many types of waiting. No, that's what it comes uh, to. And so, I mean, you've categorized several types of waiting in your book. Um, how many do you think there are?
1: Well, the the, the three main types, I think that that uh, that, that I talk about, are um, are pairing which is what we've been talking about with children, this notion that if you can't wait, you can't affiliate. The second of the of the sorts is, if you like, the pause, which we haven't talked about at all, but um, a pause. And if I were to do one now, let's say it produces an effect and its effect is uh, um, to increase excitement. Public speakers use it constantly, don't they? Um, There's been books written about it and theses, you know, PhD theses written on it, calculating how long does, you know, uh, Francois Mitterrand pause, he was very good at them, Uh, and how long does someone like Barack Obama, who was a powerful speaker and he utilised the pause a lot, how long do his pauses go? Actually, short. One of the examples that, that I use is um, is Miles Davis, the American jazz musician, the uh, uh, trumpeter. Would often hold a cigarette when he was playing, so you can imagine the cigarette in his uh, in his hand with the trumpet, or he'll simply stop playing, let somebody else play, and then he'll smoke. So he's using the cigarettes, and you can see this on Vivo, on. Uh, um, on uh, youtube um he uses the uh, he uses the cigarette as a way of pausing and increasing the excitement because you're looking at him smoking and you know at the end of that smoke he's going to start playing again well that'll be good if you like that sort of music so that the pause then in which we haven't seen can be used in lots and lots of different ways but it's particularly linked to performance i'm sure you used it a lot when you were when you were lecturing or when you lecture here at the university of calgary um
0: yeah, I guess.
1: <laughs> you're silent at that one you gave me a pause back so <laughs> what can i say
0: <laughs> yes i guess
1: <laughs> and so the other third one <coughs> i think i mentioned was dread that's an easy one um if you're going to be executed you're waiting and dread's bad then the harder thing is to look at uh, Situations of dread and see can they ever or are they ever turned to to people's advantage? So there's the three sorts, and they really are they're the main ways that boredom operate that uh, waiting operates. The things like patience are a tiny subset of uh, of waiting, and I think really boredom is a separate thing altogether, though it seems linked to it. And uh, I think we're probably just Muddying the waters to make the
0: link. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, So, another aspect that comes up often in your work is the use of images like. I've lost your
1: sound. Can't hear you.
0: Oh. Okay. Yeah, I
1: heard you then.
0: Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No. So, I was asking that um, another aspect that comes often in in your work is the use of, of work of art. Um, whether they are uh, like paintings or photographs, uh, sculptures. Um, so well, I have two questions about that. The first one is how do you go about finding these works that represent the emotions or the or in this case the, the weighting that, that you want to portray? And and the other question is that sometimes um, I find your explanation of the art rather subjective. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's like you want to see the emotion in that painting, but that maybe someone else that wasn't thinking about that would not necessarily in, interpret it but that way.
1: The, the, um, the, your, your second question first, am I being subjective in this, probably a lot less than you'd imagine. the The reason for that is is that there's uh, it's like I don't know Homeric formulae or something like that, you know I mean, you, you tell a student, you, not me, about the wine-dark sea, and they they said, "Well, that's not a cliche. It sounds really good." And you say, "Well, listen, when you've read as much Homer as me, and you've met wine-dark sea or, or you know, glor- godlike Achilles a uh, hundred times. You know, it's uh, um, you're dealing with a trope." Would you agree on that one yes. <laughs> um, that, <laughs> yes and i think it's it's pretty much the same with with a lot of painting that that there's tropes and, uh, uh, and painters who've been taught know the tropes and they play with them, and we don 't get them necessarily unless We've spent quite a lot of time looking at them or read the books that will explain them to you. You know, the the tropes linked to boredom, let's say, and to depression are, are well known. And there's been many fat books talk about them. And my own little contribution to that would be simply to try and distinguish boredom from depression. Now, I think that one's sort of cut and dried. Um, the boredom depression one, because we're dealing with um uh, patterns in in western art and and not just western art that that go back a long long way um with waiting it's less easy um you're looking you're looking for a picture essentially or you're hoping a picture will pop out to you that displays a person in a state of being paused as it were. Jealousy is easy because I put. Pair these three books up—not call them a trilogy, but a trio, if you like. Jealousy always has threes in them; it's just unavoidable. Jealousy is—it's—I uh, don't know—it's—it's it's the emotion behind the emergence of the third actor in Greek uh, Greek tragedy. See, I seriously mean it. Once you've got three people there, you have attention because somebody's going to be excluded or listening, and what they're listening to is going to affect them. So you can't be jealous. Of a person, another person, unless there's a third element, either a person or a thing, which could be money or position or whatever, involved. I think that's true, you know, that boredom is a if as it were is a triad sorry, jealousy is a triadic emotion. It's always threes. So when you when you're looking at art and you see three people involved, once you know about this this almost cliche of the experience, you say, well, no, I'm not being subjective. Why are there three people here? And sometimes it's simply accidental. But somebody like Munch, who paints jealousy again and again and again, uses triangles, triangular situations like this always when he's trying to depict jealousy. You can't paint a, a sort of... Roiling or roiling picture, like Strindberg will try and do, and say, "This is jealousy. Your mind's a mess." Well, you know, your mind might be a mess from indigestion. So we get to waiting. So we've had really the one with with boredom. Boredom's a solitary emotion, as is depression, which is a mood, not an emotion. But it's it's both of them reflect a person who's cut off from the the world of circumstances and, and linkage to other people. Waiting is always for something else, and usually for us, it's with a, for another person. It really is. I mean, sure, if you're outside the sunny side health food store, it's to get inside to buy some food, but often you're waiting to meet somebody whom you like very much, sometimes somebody you don't. So that's where the pairing comes in, and that's where I'd say that it's not half as subjective as you'd think. Now, I may get it wrong with some of the art that I use, but that's a different matter, that the basic notion of, uh, of pairing linked to waiting, linked to art, I think is a pretty, is a pretty strong one, particularly when you compare it with the, with the threes, the triples in jealousy, and the soul person, which is what you get with uh, uh, boredom and, uh, and depression. So there's an explanation. You don't have to buy it. That's all right. And some of my illustrations may be wrong. That's a different matter. How do I get these things? It's mysterious. They just come to me. <laughs> I mean, they really do. I mean, I look at a lot of art every day. I spend time looking at quite a lot of it. And these things just they just come. So what can I say?
0: Yeah. Oh, I That's have- how it happens. <laughs> I have the same experience looking at inscriptions, for instance. No, they they just come to you. For sure,
1: they do. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think so. Once, once you're, once you're in the groove uh, of these sorts of experiences, or, uh, or, uh, um, I guess, athletic lives, and so on that you work on, these things do seem to just come out of the out of the blue. You just read and you find these things, um, and it's not something that you will, is it? It's just something that appears because you're you're conscious of of the. The sort of parameters within which these things can appear.
0: Yes, and as you were talking, and you mentioned that um, depression was not an emotion, that it was a mood. Um, mm. Mm. What's the difference between a mood and an emotion?
1: Usually, it's said to be time, okay. just time. That is to say, you know, a feeling is something that's that's quick. And it's something you're often not conscious of. An emotion is something that persists, but it it usually, you, you don't stay angry for weeks. You stay angry, you can stay angry for an hour, um, but it's not something that lasts forever. Um, and similarly with boredom, these are, these are emotions of, of, and I'd say waiting too, are of, of limited temporal duration. But a mood is something that lasts and lasts, does it not? So, you know, a major depressive disorder can last up to a year and there's another one, persistent depressive disorder, that can last for three, four years. I mean, that's really the distinction between a mood and an emotion. It's duration, I think.
0: Okay. Well, I, and I guess this brings us to to another topic, and is that of mental disease that you work in, on mental disease, you not know, the history of madness. Uh, and I'm I'm curious about what motivates to write you about that, and 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 why is that aspect so prevalent in your work?
1: It's it, mental disorder is is at the back of. Uh... Everything I write, there's no doubt about that. And you, you're right to, to point it out. Even in the book going back, say, four books, Melancholy, Love, and Time, which is about depression and uh, and the way that uh, um, time can play into it and so on. But um, I think, uh, really, in misused, misused emotions, and sometimes we can't help it, cause huge chaos within people's lives you know an emotion like jealousy it can be sometimes good you know it makes you competitive it makes you get on at work and that's mostly how it plays out for us and what's wrong with that that's just capitalism in action you know i mean you can be down on capitalism sure but it works off competition and your athletes i mean they're jealous in a sense they want the big prize don't they we don't think of them that way, but th- this is a sort of competitive emotion. Sorry, sorry Peter,
0: I, I lost you. Can you repeat what you were saying?
1: Uh, with the athletes?
0: Yeah, like we don't think about them. Or further back. Uh, j- just with the athletes. I lost you for a well, while.
1: Well, we, we, we tend not to think about athletes as subject to, to jealousy, but if we think of jealousy rather as a competitive emotion – rather than just thinking about it as it's got to do with sex, which, it, you know, it's way more complicated than that, but as a competitive emotion, then it's not a bad thing. You would never say, you know, you were wrong to go to the Olympics and to, you know, to try and defeat someone in the marathon. You'd say, well, that's what we're, you know, we've subscribed to this Olympics broadcast to see you do. Um, whether they're Greeks or moderns, it's a competitive situation, and that involves three things. Is it not two athletes or more, but, it, you know, in a sense, two athletes and uh, a prize, and the prize is the third thing, and they're competing to get the prize, and so, and so it is. So it is in uh, in human life, you would say. What got us started on jealousy now? Well, I've gone so far on.
0: Well, you we were talking <laughs> about mental diseases and how that is a constant in in your yes, world. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. So so as you can see, I mean, jealousy is a good thing, mostly. Um, and we don't call it jealousy then. We don't even call it envy. We simply call it a competitive emotional state or something like that. We say competition's good. But we'll also say, don't let it get the better of you. Don't let it get you um, to go a Little bit crazy and, and hate the person you're competing with and try and harm them so that you'll win, uh, you know, to trip them up or push them over a bridge. You're st- but this happens, does it not? That the competitive spirit turns into a driving jealousy, which is not unlike uh, sexual jealousy. Or the jealousy we get at work, the way people will jockey for position, to for promotion, to be more important, and earn more, or whatever it is. Emotions get out of hand. is what I'm saying, and they get out of hand all the time. And uh, it seems to me profoundly sad and uh, and worrisome. That's part of it, but the other too is, is, you know, the big emotional problems. Problems relating to psychosis and to uh, um, bipolar disorder and to and to depression. Frankly, I I find them probably the most saddening but important things in our life. We can't get away from them. Not necessarily with ourselves, but the people around us. The portions where I portions of Calgary where I live are full of people who suffer psychotic disorders, and it's. Very, very distressing. And for me, I think, you know, mental um, mental unhealth is is at the, I don't know, the core of the most worrisome aspect of human life. And that's, that's why so often I write about it and why I try and show with things like boredom, with jealousy, with depression, with waiting, how sometimes they can be turned to our advantage and sometimes not harm us which is what I hope to try and display, in, at least in these last three books.
0: Yeah, and, and do you think in, in the ancient world, this idea of mental disease was as prevalent as it, is it in the modern world?
1: It, the, is- the simplest way, I think, or, or the most assertive way of saying it is this is what the local neurologists here tell me, that they that say major depressive disorder, as far as they can tell, in any culture, sits at about four point four percent, four point five percent of the population will suffer major depressive disorder. Once you've had one uh, burst of trouble with it, it's going to come back. So you'll, you know, you may have four or five um, outbreaks if you like of the of the condition in your life doesn't have to stay as a permanent thing, you know. But um, having said that, if it's this constant, they will assert that historically it's simply part of the, the human makeup. Now, to what extent is it prevalent in the ancient world? Well, there seems to be evidence enough in late literature with Galen and so on in the ancient world that it's there. For sure, they understand it, when they talk about melancholia, uh, they mean depression in our sense and often quite severe depression. Um, So it was there, but to what extent were they able to mitigate it? To what extent was it um, eased by life expectancy? You know, I mean, if at birth, most men are dead at 26, then... Their worst phase of depression, beginning say round nineteen, isn't very long, is it um and just the rough justice in the street I mean there's no police force, is there? The cities aren't lit at night. A person who's a danger to themselves and to others may indeed suffer rough justice in the streets um There's other things you can say about that because there's you know there's plenty of testimony to to people who are troublesome in uh, you know, in the digest and uh, in in the legal codes. But it must have been there. But some things mitigate it. There's no doubt about that. And the family is certainly one of them. Um, And life expectancy, I'm sure, plays into it. There's evidence of psychotic conditions. Um, Clear examples of it. You know, it feels like uh, people have said when Achilles kills, sorry, Ajax kills himself in the play and, uh, and, in stories, generally, that he's suffering um, severe depression, and, and I don't think I don't think that's the case. It's it's psychotic. He doesn't know who he's looking at. Um, he doesn't recognize Athena. He doesn't realize that he's uh, you, you know who he's got that he's got animals strapped up, thinking they're his enemies, and so on. And we'd call that now psychosis, wouldn't we? Um, and it surely is. So it's there in ancient life. It's just. Uh, mitigated by some of the circumstances. Above all, you'd think by the fact of people not living long enough. You know, I mean, as people often say, you, you know, um, most, you know, most Roman men, and it's probably even more true of Greeks, didn't know their fathers. No wonder they went to the gym so much. They had to speak to an adult somewhere. <laughs> Let us go no further with that. But um, it, uh, what do you do? what do you do in a world where your father's liable to be dead? Um, you're going to have to be acculturated somehow or another, but this spills over because mental illness doesn't begin usually until 19 or 20. Um, it can be a little older with things like bipolar disorder. So um, that limits the uh, the prevalence, doesn't it?
0: Okay. Thank you very much. And I, so I just have a few other questions, um, mostly a little bit, to keep it a bit lighter, I guess. Um, but you talk quite a bit about your personal experience, which has come up in the talk already. Um, but again, you know, do you feel comfortable talking about your own experience to large audiences? I mean, you have um, you large audiences for your books and and for your podcast. And um, so, how comfortable yeah. do you feel about it?
1: Well, I don't tell them anything I don't want, to, don't want them to hear. You know, I mean, that's for sure. I mean, you know, there's there's things that you simply won't say. And, uh, you know, like juvenile, I talk more about the dead than the living oftentimes. Um, but I, I, it doesn't bother me in the least. I mean, we're talking about mental conditions here and, and often uh, great mental pain. There's got to be skin in the game from the... From the person who's writing the book, I think, I mean people say, "Why did you write about boredom?" And the answer is, because it's something I've suffered and continue to suffer constantly throughout my life. Why would I not admit to that? You know nearly everybody who writes about boredom comes clean on it and says, "Well, that's why I, that's why I wrote about it. You know it It, it bothers me a lot. The idea of, of turning to a subject without personal involvement just seems to me bizarre." really I mean you're very interested in athletics um, in your in your ordinary life that is to say non- scholarly life and it flows over into your scholarly life you write about uh, athletics because it's something that concerns you um, and gives you great pleasure so you know we're not talking about pleasure here but they're not nobody's hearing anything that uh, you know that is shocking or that they don't experience themselves. I mean, yeah, is that a fair answer?
0: It is a fair answer. Yes, <laughs> I was just thinking that writing about boredom and giving pleasure, getting pleasure for writing about boredom—how contradictory it is.
1: <laughs> well, I think, I think, you, you know, the answer to that is, is people write books like this to try and cure themselves of it. They mm. won't always admit to it, but I'm yes. happy to admit to that you know does it work i doubt it but you know (laughs) your hope springs eternal (laughs) Um,
0: yes like i some uh, sometimes i had heard uh, that all people study psychology to psychoanalyze themselves no so i guess (laughs) i'm
1: I'm sure there's an element of that in it um without a doubt. There's lots of other reasons now. I mean, that couldn't yes. explain the huge numbers they get in first-year psychology. But, <laughs> um, but, but for sure, I think but you, you, can't, you can't write with feeling about a subject unless you're involved with it in your own life. I think um, the, the idea of, of being the, the sort of indifferent scholar is, uh, just seems to me unbelievable. Um, No one would do that. Maybe you write about the Greeks just for some bizarre reason. They fascinate you. But there's got to be more to it than that. You write about Greek and Roman politics. You must be pretty interested in the cut and thrust of it yourself, in following it and watching it and what happens in in the world in which you live, I would think. Mm.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah and I just have one last question and I thought it was really funny at the end of your book when I was just reading that your <laughs> book on boredom was in an Irish prison and the prisoners uh, had the choice to read it <laughs> and they liked it yeah yeah
1: and the 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 journalist the Irish journalist with a you know an anglo uh, anglo-irish name instead of the bog irish name that I have um Sneered at it. Um, well, you know, you can get very serious about this. You know, when you put people in jail, I think you, you know there, there's rules about what you can do to them in jail. Would you not say that you give them three years, and that doesn't mean that they get beaten up in jail. It doesn't mean that they get no food on Wednesdays. It doesn't mean that if they're young, they're uh, um, they're sexually molested. That. We owe a duty of care to people in jail and and their punishments should be strictly demarcated. Now, to bung a person in jail and to bore them out of their mind, which is a frequent complaint about jail, seems to me not part of the deal. You know the judge should sit up there. I'm giving you three years for, uh, for you know, speeding through Calgary in the daylight, and uh, you're going to be uh, um, subjected to the normal situations of being in jail, and you're going to be bored too, and that's part of your punishment. All right, fair enough. But I don't think boredom should be just an add-on situation for prisoners' lives, nor should they be subjected to prolonged. Um, a prolonged solitary confinement, which is an excruciating form of boredom, as well as many other things. That um fair's fair. And I think that the reason these, these prisoners were reading the book is, and, and they were probably very disappointed with it, but their lives as prisoners were immensely boring, and this is seen again and again and again. Um, so we shouldn't laugh about it. We shouldn't do it to them, just in the same way as... Um, there's a, a Spanish scholar that I know from Madrid who is very interested to work. She's an expert on boredom, trust me. She's the president of the International Boredom Society. <laughs> there is one. Yeah. And um, she wants to work with, with old people. She wants to shift from being a, a philosopher to a uh, almost a social worker because she's so worried about the prevalence of boredom in old age homes. So she's got older people in her family and it worries her. That shouldn't be part of your punishment of being put into a retirement home, should it? Wouldn't you say? You no, know? of course not. You'll go in there for the rest of your life. We'll feed you and we'll boil you stiff. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's a sure way to to kill them off.
0: Actually, now with the pandemic, they were saying that many old people die because they couldn't contact other people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I th- I'm quite sure that you, you know if you think about boredom being the enemy of waiting, waiting. Always is with something else that's going to happen, and usually and oftentimes it's something good. But boredom, there's no end to it. That's why it's, uh, um, or there is an end, but it's 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 for a period of time which you can't control, like a hugely long Easter sermon in church. You know, I mean, they can be excruciatingly boring because. You can't go anywhere. You're stuck. You know it's going to end, but it's not going to end for a good long while. But you imagine you're stuck there for all eternity, or at least the last five years of your life. Um, you're not going to get visitors. You're not going to be stimulated. No wonder it's uh, um, they create playing havoc with, with people's health. I mean, I, I would say it's a serious issue for people. So, and this is why boredom is the enemy of waiting, because waiting is with something concrete in mind and usually um, it's something we can uh, uh, we're looking forward to unless you're on death row and that's another matter but, you know
0: <laughs> well yeah thank you very much that was very interesting and, and very clarifying and I hope our listeners enjoyed as much as I did thank you
1: thank you Pleasure.